Welcome new and old friends to the College Admissions Decoded podcast, an occasional series from the National Association for College Admission Counseling, or NACAC. NACAC is an association of more than 27,000 professionals at high schools, colleges, universities, and nonprofit organizations, as well as independent counselors who support and advise students and families through the college admission process. I'm your host, Eddie Pickett. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm a NACAC board member. In my day job, I'm the Senior Associate Dean of Admissions and Director of Recruitment at Pomona College in Claremont, California. College Admissions Decoded offers valuable insights and guidance for students and families who are considering next steps in the sometimes confusing college admissions process. Today, I'm joined by four experts in admission and international education to chat about students leaving their home countries for college. This conversation will include information for both U.S. citizens and non-U.S. citizens. We have four experts, and so I'm going to start with our first guest. Welcome, Clay Hensley, International Education Consultant. Thank you, Eddie. Happy to be here. Next up, we have Joan Liu, founder of Second Chance. Welcome, Joan. Thanks. Next, we have Satya Dadagupta, Chief Enrollment Officer at Northeastern University. Good morning. Happy to be here. And last but not least, Du Bois Jennings, Director of Engagement for North America at Education New Zealand. Welcome, Du Bois. Kia ora. Hello. Thank you all for joining us today for this important conversation. As students navigate this process, there's so many if, ands, buts, and they don't always know who to go to. So now that I'm sitting around the table with these four experts, I'm excited to have this conversation. And also, it's not a space I sit in often, so I'm definitely looking forward to learning. We're going to jump in and talk about trends first. And so what are the top trends we're seeing around international student mobility, especially at the undergraduate level post-pandemic? So Eddie, I'll start. You know, the NACAC community, which is very global and increasingly so under the leadership of Angel Perez, just at this conference, we have more than 40 countries represented. And there's been tremendous turmoil uh, in the international space during COVID and frankly before. But we're recovering and there's a bit of a reinvention, a reimagination and a reboot happening. And I'd be very curious uh, you know, Satya, you know, at Northeastern, what are some of the things that you're seeing? Yeah, so before I answer that, Clay, I think it's important for, for, for everyone to know, this is deeply personal for me. Uh, I came to this country, United States, at the age of 17 from Mumbai, India. You used the word sometimes confusing. I would say always confusing admissions process because at, at, you know, at 17, you have the entire world ahead of you. And this is, you know, 20, 23 years ago, I remember being completely lost in the process. So as the chief enrollment officer of Northeastern, that drives what I do for a living. That drives how I see the world. And when I see 17-year-olds applying to Northeastern, I see a lot of myself in them. And so in terms of trends, what I'm seeing is a greater desire to take risk. I'll tell you what I mean by that. I think a lot more students that typically wouldn't have considered going abroad are going abroad. And part of that is that there's, there's more access to information, there's more access to knowledge, there's more access to resources. But above everything else, I think the way people think has changed significantly. I think students expect to go abroad. There's a real need for students to explore the world I often say this, that the globe is round, but the world is flat. 
I, I actually give the pandemic some credit for this. There's not a lot of credit anyone can give to the pandemic, but because of virtual recruitment, people across the globe got access to universities and university leaders where people started talking about, you know, what studying abroad means. And it, it's sort of contradictory, right? Because during the pandemic, you couldn't travel. But during that time, you met people from all over the world. And you learned what it might be to go to a different country. The second thing I, th I think is that's interesting is colleges and universities are meeting students where they are. And that didn't happen before the pandemic. I think there was a one size fits all. If it doesn't fit, you know, too bad. But I think through test optional policies, through, you know, for example, at Northeastern, we are in India now accepting the Indian State Board, uh, Country Board credit, is giving students access and opportunities to dream bigger. And I think, so in terms of trends, I'm just seeing more students take chances and explore opportunities that are beyond just one or two countries. I would say another trend that we're seeing, Eddie, is more diversity within an international education, particularly a shift from the global north to the global south, where Satya is from, you know, places like India, places like Sub-Saharan Africa, the Southern Cone, ASEAN countries. But with that, a more diverse and a greater variety of types of students and different income levels. And Joan, uh, you work with a great deal of students that have need. What are some of the trends you're seeing? Well, between students who have need and also students who are full pay students, I see more students doing a multi-application university process. So what does that mean? It means that, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago, we would see applicants applying just to one single country. And oftentimes that country was the United States, the American dream. But I think that now it is not unusual to see a student apply to the US and Canada and the UK or New Zealand, Australia and Singapore or Hong Kong, China and Turkey. So I think that students have many more English higher education programs to choose from from around the world. And the third trend I see relates to that in that the U.S., even though it continues to be one of the most popular, the more prominent destination of international students, that other countries, particularly places like New Zealand, are not only becoming destinations for full-time students, but we're seeing more American students look for opportunities to study abroad, both full degree and short term. Du Bois, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, you know, there's more information out there. And I think governments and institutions are also grappling with these issues of access and thinking about who traditionally studied abroad, from what classes, and really changing that for the benefit of education, to have these different voices in the classroom. Government agencies like my own or institutions are thinking creatively around initiatives to try and attract students from a wide array of backgrounds. And again, meeting them where they're at. I think a lot of you know international recruitment in the past was just getting what we call in New Zealand bums in seats. But now the conversation has shifted to, what are you gonna do to support these students when they're in the country? What are you gonna do to make sure that they achieve the goals um, that themselves and their communities and their families have set out for them? What are the structures at these institutions that will help them be successful and not trying to fit them into a system that's just not working for them? 
Yeah, Dubois said something, and, and, and jo John alluded to this as well, which is the international student is different, right? That it's not one characteristic that defines every student. And, and John, you said, you know, there's full-pay students and there's students that need a lot of financial need. And I, I fell in the second strata, which is somebody who needed to fund and to make any of my dreams happen. And I think the single thing in that strata of student is where can I get a better life for myself and my entire family? Which is why I think this is really healthy to see people look at options beyond just United States. For a lot of these students, they want to come and find a job. And, you know, that might not be the initial intent that they can send the visa interview, but it's the single biggest investment they're making in their lives. So New Zealand, I think, has has really popped up. And I, and I completely agree with you, Du Bois, is because of its friendly policies for families saying that, hey, you can come here, you can educate yourself, but should you want to stay, we'll help you with that as well. So I think that that drives some of the the trends that we're seeing is how friendly the the policies of the government. So Dubai's completely agree with that. The welcomeness, the belonging that happens with that. But I would say, especially in these countries, there's a division between the haves and have nots. I've heard the term a tale of two Carnegie codes or two <laughs> classifications. If you're Pomona or Northeastern, you know, you're on a coast you're prominent, you have a high ranking, you have one experience. If you're a regional public or you're a tuition-driven private, you may have a different experience right now. And Joan, as you guide students, what are you seeing in terms of institutions that may not be as prominent? And how are they attracted or engaging with international students? I guess I'll speak from the, the point of view of the majority of students that I work with, which are very high achieving, low income students. I think that for this group of students, this demographic access is more limited in terms of information. Students don't often have a college counselor that they can rely on for knowledge. And I think students are kind of at the mercy of what is the most visible on the internet, which are just a very small group of institutions. And so I think that it is very difficult for a student from, for example, the Global South, who has a zero EFC or a zero SAI, to find institutions that they would not necessarily be aware of if they did have a counselor or they did, for example, have Education USA or an agency working with them. So I think that there are a couple of new things in the landscape that help with this, like reverse admissions, direct admissions, like these new paradigms where institutions are looking for students versus students just looking for institutions. Are there others or other things that you all see in the landscape that, that help in regards to this? Yeah, so I, I think you brought something up, which is access to information. And I was in, in Accra uh, a few months ago, and I was talking to a 17-year-old student, and I was telling them about my journey that I'd had no information. Uh, internet was not a real thing then. So you, you relied on a book that told you where you might go, and you just started from the top ranking schools and, and see where you fit. But it's changing now, and I thought his life would be easier. And he actually said he's drowning in information, starving for wisdom, which is that there's just so much information out there, doesn't know where to start, and doesn't know what, which piece of information to trust, and is, is almost confused about where to find the right piece of information. I think so you're, you're absolutely right. I do think, though, that the access to counseling has been a game changer. Just a, an example in India, 
there are more counselors per school than there have ever been. So I think that's been a huge change that I've seen is the ability for students to trust somebody. Being a low-income student myself, trust is a big thing because we always think that high-income students or families that come, they're well-resourced, they can pay people to buy that trust. So when someone is trying to help you, there's a sense of doubt. Are they helping me? because they're trying to do something themselves or they're actually helping me for myself. So I think that's, Joan, the work that you've done, I think has been a game changer for students. First, I want to say thank you for sharing your story. Like students hearing other people's stories, particularly where you sit in the VP role is really important. Um, Second, can you talk about who some of those trusted resources are? Because you just said there's a lot of them and there's also a lot of information. So who are those trusted resources? So one thing I would say, if you are, for example, a student who is a non-U.S. student listening to this podcast and you're looking at the United States, for example, I would recommend that you look at the 470 Education USA offices that are on the ground. They're oftentimes in capital cities and they have free, accurate information for you. So that would be one resource that I would recommend. I'll just say from the New Zealand context, you know, we're a tiny country of 5 million people. We're, you know, competing with the Canada's and the Australia's and the U.S.'s. But that affords us to be really flexible and creative. Education New Zealand has a really great online platform for potential students that talks to them and shares resources, everything about, you know, social identity, how to live in New Zealand, what the culture and society is like, and giving video content that is applicable to this generation. Generation and those kinds of things that are easily digestible and understood. You talked about that trust aspect of it, it coming from the New Zealand government or coming from immigration New Zealand and those kind of things. So as a government agency, we try and get that information out as much as possible. So you have people who are in the United States that are looking to study abroad, let's say, or you have students abroad that might want to come to the United States to study. And there are a number of different resources, right? For me, though, I tell students, ask a person like you that is going through that journey. So I'll always say, let's say you're someone growing up in, let's say Hyderabad, and you want to go to uh, New Zealand. Talk to somebody who's from your hometown that went there. Is the institution telling you the lived experience of that person? And the only person that can give you that answer is that student. That's a wonderful point. And NACAC, not only does it provide resources, so for example, the Guide to International University Admissions is on our website, Eddie, but I think the thought leadership and the promotion, really more of an ambassadorship or advocacy for school counselors as a profession worldwide. There's certainly partners in the space like IC3, International ACAC, that are promoting the concept of a career guidance counselor that is that trusted partner to students on that journey. I believe NACAC has become one of the key leaders, not only in the U.S., but globally, of promoting that. I just want to respond to uh, what Satya said. Absolutely, uh, alumni, a lot of these you know, huge institutions have really robust alumni communities all over the world. And that's where students are going to get some of the best information by talking to people who come from their backgrounds, who have their experiences, who are able to go on and do these things. And may, you know, it, it relates to their, to developing their network as well. That's, that's where it begins by talking to people who have these similar experiences and, and similar goals as you. 
thinking about that space and providing these different opportunities, uh, what are the most common factors that are guiding decision-making for young people who aspire to study internationally? For a lot of students, it's a return on investment. If I'm going to invest, be $1 or $500,000, whatever that number is, what do I get in return for that? What happens to me? What happens to my life? And for parents too, what is going to happen to my child who is going on this journey? For a couple of reasons, right? A lot of families have choices. It's, it's not one of those things where a student is applying to one institution and just going there. People are applying to multiple institutions, looking at different financial offers and seeing what is my best return investment? Who will I become at the end of this journey? And I always tell families this, that if you're the same exact person you were when you started your college journey, and the, at the end, then college hasn't done for you. I agree 100%. Right. Right. I say the same thing. Right, because otherwise you're just checking a box. You're, you're, you're giving up on what I think is the most powerful time in your life to become somebody that you were meant to be. I, I would also like to say affordability is really important to students. I think also increasingly programming because I see a, a greater number of students who are interested in a very specific program for example, computer science or engineering. And then also, to some extent, whether or not the institutions that they're applying to also have a cohort of international students that already exist so that they are um, not the first or only ones that look like them on a particular campus. I, I love that. I'm always answering this from the standpoint of an institution and Joan is going straight into the head of the student, which exactly. I appreciate, yeah. Also, what can students get outside of their country that they can't get in their own country? Good point. Absolutely. And the interdisciplinary models that, you know, this may sound a bit American-centric, but that really were formed. You know, those transformative models of education in the U.S. that we're seeing impacted in places like India. You know, those liberal education, liberal arts models at places like Ashoka and Opie Jindal and Flame. But... Really, the U.S. still has that opportunity to position itself and attract such a diverse group of international students that are attracted to that form of education, but Eddie, that also impact the education of those of us in the U.S. for the better. And I, I just like to add to from a U.S. students going out perspective is I've talked to some high school counselors and parents who talk about the alignment of their values. Some some families and some students feel like, you know, with the Scottish decision, the overturning of Roe v. Wade and affirmative action and all these things, they said, I want to study in a country that has the same values as I do. I see some of the, in ways direction, the direction going in this country does not align with my values. So I'd like to study in a country that has a different perspective on these things and are doing things differently in the culture and society is going in a different direction. I want to pick up on something that Joan just said on costs, because costs are a big chunk of the higher ed experience and understanding it. So how do students truly assess the costs for higher ed? Students and parents, if you're listening to this, I think it's important to think about this in terms of two buckets. There are direct costs, which are listed on the website. And then there are indirect costs, which are costs that you will still incur that maybe are not listed on the website. So for example, international students are trying to apply to the United States. Those costs would include the SEVIS, the visa, the immunizations that you need to get to come to the United States. In some cases, healthcare 
depending on the school, the flight, transportation to the campus, uh, data for your phones. And so that can add up to upwards of $3,000 to $5,000 if you're applying to the United States, depending on the institution. I think that if you look beyond the United States, one thing to kind of keep in mind is to look at tuition and also room and board, because some countries will consider tuition to be the full cost, not realizing that as an international student, for example, that you need to also take on the cost of residential fees. So I think it's really important to look at websites, but then also to, as Satya said earlier, uh, talk to peers or maybe talk to folks who have gone before and look at indirect costs as well so that you get the total, total sticker price of what you're paying for. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, John. So having lived this experience, the price that I saw on the website when I applied was very different than what I lived. And, and there's things that are not in there, right? So I remember we forget that these are humans at 18 that also have a desire to live a life and not just be in class and, and sleep in bed and eat food. You know, you might want to go see a movie someday or, and, and have a social life. And those things add up. I, I can tell you that from my own experience, there are costs that are hidden sometimes. So from an institutional standpoint, I urge transparency, which is give them a number that is aligned with their experience, not just the direct cost. But I think transparency upfront is important because families are investing, in many cases, their last penny to send somebody to this experience. We are seeing more institutions globally, but especially those in the U.S., allocate more financial aid, need-based and non-need-based, for international students. Students do need to consider the cost of living at institutions. So, for example, in New York, where I live, it is very expensive uh, to live. In a place like Murfreesboro, Tennessee, with MTSU, great programs, that institution allows many international students, if they meet certain criteria, to have in-state tuition, the cost of attendance goes down significantly where it's very competitive for those type of institutions. And one of the things you also mentioned is the visa process, and I'm sure there's lots of questions on the visa process. Can So can one of you or a couple of you talk about the visa process and what students should know about that? So first is that every consulate is different. Understanding that an I-20 document, or if you're in Canada, study permit document, is very different for different countries. The document that's issued by the institution tells you that, hey, you've been accepted, and this is a document that now you can use to go to the embassy and say that you want to come here. I would strongly recommend that students do their homework uh, before they're applying for a visa and understand the nuances of what the consulate is seeking um, and, and realize that, and I'm not trying to scare anybody here, but there are certain things that the consulate wants to make sure that you are not doing on certain types of visas and that you're taking care and making sure that you're applying for the right type of visa. So uh, that is in many cases the final step before somebody comes to the destined country that they want to be in. So it's, it, it's a process that I would tell students to not take lightly and do a lot of research. And I would just add to that two to three copies of everything and <laughs> listen to your institution when they ask you for the required paperwork and it might seem onerous or why do I need two of these? No, because these consulates and these immigration rules are very specific about what they need and they need those things specifically, if, even if it sounds redundant, 
do exactly what it says on the paper. Do your homework and read things carefully. We talked a lot about doing full-term studies so far. So three or four years, your full-term. What about short-term programs? What advice would you give to students in the U.S. who are interested in pursuing an international experience? I encourage all students to do this, but even if you think maybe just a little bit, I want to study abroad, go to your study abroad or international office because you want to align your study abroad experience with your goals and, you know, your career goals, your academic goals. And that has to start as you're planning, you know, your academic plan at the university. You want to build in a study abroad experience that will complement the things that you are hoping to study. Even if you don't know what you want to study, go in, get the information and the timeline. Yeah, I think this is a really good question because I think a short term experience is like a trailer to a movie. Right. So you can use that as a, as a window into something you want to see or not. Someone loves Spain, but they go there and they find out they actually don't. Instead of going there for four years, do that for that small period of time. See if it's the right space for you and then make a decision if that's the right place you want to go. And the other thing I would say is to not just stick to three or four destinations. The world is beautiful. It's big and culturally diverse. So, you know, try experiences that are the right fit for you, not necessarily something that might have been the right fit for your cousin or somebody you heard from. As the Global South is becoming a source of talented students, it's also becoming opportunities to be a destination for talented students, especially from the U.S. I love that metaphor of the preview or something that will be a taster for something else. In fact, Satya, it made me think that at Northeastern, you know, you can do a traditional study abroad, but with your co-op program, you know, you can actually work abroad. Isn't that right? Yeah, and I think, you know, that, that's, that's something that opens your world in so many different ways, right? Because if you live in a different country, and, and Northeastern has over 3,000 co-op partners all over the world, uh, it's, it's fascinating, right, that you could go to Spain, and I, I'm still stuck on that, and you could actually work there. And the work culture of different countries is very different. But there are some things that are similar across the world, which is accountability. No matter where you go, if someone's paying you to do something, they expect something out of you. And a co-op is, is, a, is a real opportunity for you to see what it's like to be in the real world. And I think a global experience beyond education, a work experience could be a real life changer. I think that's why we draw a certain type of student. I think that's a wonderful point. Work and internships, really getting an idea of all of the opportunities that are open to you in a study abroad program. Because again, you're starting to build your network. You're starting to think about your career. And then more and more employers are looking at cross-cultural communication skills, all of these soft skills. Can you deal with different kinds of people? And it's about getting to know that culture and learning it in depth. But learning to understand how to engage with different kinds of culture and getting those skills. That's what you can really pull away from a study abroad experience. Yeah, I want to shout out Northeastern's co-op programs. You and Drexel are killing the game. So thank you for providing so many opportunities for adults uh, to see some other way of living, to actually have some real world work experience because you know you can graduate and actually already have a job or have worked a full-time job. It's a very different experience than just doing a regular internship. So thank you for the work you're doing. 
Uh, the second part I would say is, and from my experience, I didn't study abroad. I played football and baseball when I was an undergrad, so I knew I wasn't couldn't go during the semester. I didn't know there were summer programs or winter programs. So students, make sure you ask the question because I would have definitely taken advantage of one of those two. So a closed mouth doesn't get fed. Go ask the question. Uh, we only have time for one more question. It's going to be an elevator pitch. And so your 30 second to one minute pitch to a student who's leaving their home country who might be the first one to leave that space. And I'm not going to give that to Satya. Satya, I think there's more of your story I want to hear. So I'm going to have them do their elevator pitch. And Satya, you're going to take us home with more of your story. I would say to a student who's first to leave, you know, within reason, say yes to everything. You know, when you're in a new place and you're outside of your your environment, Seek out these opportunities that, you know, in a safe way that maybe you wouldn't be able to do in your home country or you wouldn't have the opportunity to do and really engage with, you know, a culture that's different from yours. But also reflection is so important and critical. You know, this experience isn't something that happens in a box. So, you know, while you're there, I always encourage students to journal. I know, you know, at that age, it's not maybe the thing that they want to do, but journaling and reflecting on your experiences. But then when you come back, that is where you can learn a lot from your intercultural experience. When you're back in your home country, really reflecting on what you did, how you navigated, you know, these challenges and and how you succeeded, where were the failures, what you can learn from them, and really taking that on and what you do in the future. So we have a lot of second chance students who are the first Tanzanian, Zimbabwean, Ethiopian at Hong Kong universities. And what we say to these students and what I would say to those of you who are listening is, first of all, it's an honor to be first. It's great to, to set the precedent. Know that you are doing something really important for the rest of your community. So while it's easier to be second, it's an honor to be first. And I think about what Wes Moore said in that main stage event when he said, the table is waiting for you. There's a seat for you. And so I would say embrace being first. The world is changing so quickly right now that the lens that higher education enables to allow a student to transform, to really develop potential and show promise, nothing like studying outside of your own country for the first time can really allow that kind of potential to shine. And it's just one of the biggest privileges of my life to work in international education. Peer organizations like NACAC, like NAFSA, AIEA, others that really enable students to do this, experience this kind of opportunity. To me, that's an amazing opportunity for these students. So you said, to tell you my story, so I'm going to take you back to the 16-year-old version of me, which was uh, better looking and, you know, in many ways, better in, in every way. I mean, you're pretty well dressed from what I can see right now, though. Yeah, because I'm, I'm you know, I'm making up for that. So, so the, the, the reality is that, so I'm 16 have this dream of going to America because I've always heard it's the land of dreams. And I've been told I can go by my dad. And I start looking into the process and every person I talk to tells me, you can't do it. You're the first person to think about this in your family. You don't come from wealth. This is not happening for you. And what I decided to do was, as my dad told me this, is take control of your destiny. 
Because what you're trying to do is something that no one has done. Therefore, they can't tell you that you can't do it because they don't know that you can or cannot do it. You control your destiny. So I remember going to the Education USA office, opening up this book and literally emailing close to 350 universities and telling them a very simple thing. Dear sir, ma'am, I'm 16 years old. I want to come to your university. I want a scholarship. Uh, can you help me? And I, I think my uh, response rate was less than 1%, but it was 1%, which means that of 300, three universities reached back out and I actually ended up attending one of them. So I think my message to students is very simple, which is that dream big. Nobody can tell you what you can and cannot do, but you. And I love what Joan said, which is being first is an honor. Be a trailblazer because what you can do is inspire so many other people to do something that you can be a role model for. You know, I always grew up wanting to have access to wealth and provide for my family. And I thought that life was unfair and all of that. But I think higher education is the single biggest equalizer out there. And I think for those who are dreaming, please go for it and don't let anyone stop you. I can't say it any better than that. So thank you very much for sharing your story. Thank you all for being here. And thank you to my friends in the audience for joining us for this episode. College Admissions Decoded is a podcast from NACAC, the National Association for College Admission Counseling. It is produced by Phantom Center Media and Entertainment. Kojin Tashiro produced this episode. If you'd like to learn more about NACAC's mission and the college admission process, visit our website at www.nacacnet.org. That's N-A-C-A-C-N-E-T dot O-R-G. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and rate us on your favorite podcast app. See you next time on College Admissions Decoded.